All right, we're gonna have a very interesting conversation tonight. We're bringing on Urash Zizada. He's an organizer for Afghans for a Better Tomorrow. He's also a journalist, a filmmaker, as well as a community and labor organizer. Urash, welcome. Hey there, thanks for having me on today. Oh, no problem. So I'm curious, Afghans for a Better Tomorrow. I don't want to be insulting, so I'm just gonna say obviously you're against the Taliban. So I know this, but I want the audience to know it. Are you were you for withdrawal or against withdrawal? We were for the withdrawal, but I think what we did do is anticipate that no matter how well you would plan a withdrawal, and a withdrawal does not happen outside the context of the occupation. And now we see that the withdrawal is as disastrously executed as the occupation. However, regardless of that, we were in favor of ending the occupation and in favor of the withdrawal. That being said, there's a lot of things the US can still do today to alleviate some of the harm and pain and it's currently causing. So I want to get to those solutions because there's you have interesting thoughts on that too. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's a super interesting point and one I haven't seen it anywhere else. But before we get there, what's also interesting is being against the Taliban and being for withdrawal. By the way, I agree on both of those things. But being from Afghanistan originally, your background, it puts you in an interesting spot. So what were you hoping happened? Like. Yeah, well, let me start there. Uh, well, we got together, uh, me and two other organizers, and I have to give them full credit for um, being on this kind of uh, crazy week with me. Um, back in uh, late April and May, we saw that the Biden administration announced its withdrawal. And there's four things we immediately thought that the US could do uh, alongside some other countries in the world, in the world community. First, you know, we said we need to push for a political settlement. We don't think continued conflict or U.S. partaking in that conflict was good. Secondly, we thought the U.S. and especially the European Union, both these leading countries, should open their doors to refugees. Then, third, we were pushing for continued aid to flow into Afghanistan to prevent a humanitarian disaster. And then, fourth, we pushed for the US to end its like so called military and over the horizon capabilities, such as drone strikes and CIA backed squads. So, uh, your thoughts on refugees is what I was referencing before, and I'm going to come back to that. But let me ask you the impossible question, which is, how do you beat the Taliban in Afghanistan? Because it ain't militarily, apparently. So in your ideal world, how would we have gotten a free Afghanistan that isn't under the oppressive rule of the Taliban? Well, I think I have to kind of take you back 20 years in history or perhaps 45. And we can sit here and discuss 45 years of failed US foreign policy towards the Afghan people and the Afghan nation state. I won't do that. But what I can say is that we can go at any point, whether it's 2001, 2005, 2012 even. Uh, and we could have pushed for a political settlement. You know, we could have had kind of the uh, the political guts to say, "Hey, uh, the Taliban is unfortunately not defeatable uh, by a United States-ran uh, imperial project." Um, uh, and, and like, let's come together to push for a settlement that 
causes the least amount of harm. But the US spent all these years continuing to push for a military solution. Then when it was actually, when it became a political issue that the Trump administration and even the Biden administration could use as like a political wedge saying, hey, we need to focus things here at home. That's when it threw the Afghan people under the bus. It elevated and empowered the Taliban. And so there's there's a variety of different things that the United States could do. It could have not cut out the Afghan government as, as corrupt as they are out of the Doha Accords. And it could have helped evacuate thousands of thousands of people um, and not um, basically do a military exit of Afghanistan that um, prioritizes US interest and throws Afghan people under the bus. So um, I have a controversial opinion. So I'm from Muslim background. I grew up in Turkey and then came here. But this is not about Islam, this is about fundamentalism. I think we should have a cultural war against fundamentalism. And so now it's very hard when you've invaded a country and you're the imperial force that's occupying it. You're not likely to win that cultural war because the people see you as occupiers. It actually strengthens the Taliban's cause in a sense. But what do you think about conducting a cultural war like that and 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 really engaging and saying fundamentalism is wrong and you shouldn't listen to them and and how how do we do that right can america have a role in that or can it not what what are your thoughts there i think the united states has not only a role to play in this but it has a moral obligation and a moral obligation is to, in the first place, not have occupied Afghanistan for 20 years. Well, now it did, and so we can't reverse that. What it now can do to try to alleviate some of the pain that it has caused is to take in refugees, to continue to send humanitarian aid, to not be involved in Afghanistan militarily. These are the things they can do. And currently, the United States can actually secure an airport, make it functional, make it secure, make it operational, and evacuate people who are currently under the under, who are vulnerable, who are at risk, and who are fearing for their lives, who are going from safe house to safe house, who are desperately emailing folks like me and other folks in our community. That's that's what it can do in order to alleviate pain and, and, and participate in the world and, and have a positive contribution. Yeah, so let's talk about the refugees. And I want to see if your idea, well, I might have taken it to a different level. But when you say accept refugees from Afghanistan, how broad are you thinking? I think I look back as a 33 year old person who lives in the United States who's lived here for 20 years. And I look back at the history of 45 years of failed policies on the US's end that have done nothing but contribute to harm. You know, whether it's participating in the proxy war in, in, in the 80s, or whether it's abandoning the Afghan people in the 90s, or whether it's participating in the 20 year occupation of, 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 of Afghanistan. Any refugee that seeks safety, that seeks refuge, and that any Afghan refugee that seeks Human dignity deserves to be in this country, and it deserves to be in Canada and the UK and the Netherlands and France and any other NATO coalition partner who participated in the 20-year occupation. Yeah, I totally agree. And and if we had that rule 
probably wars like Afghanistan and Iraq would have never been started in the first place. Which is, if you're going to invade a country, well then at the end of the war, you must accept anyone who is a refugee from that war. And not just people who helped troops, not just translators, etc., but anyone in that country. You broke it, you own it, to you know, quote Colin Powell's old statement about Iraq. And and of course, Arash, that would pretty much end all wars because there's no way America would do that, right? I have high hopes, you know, like the name of our campaign is called Afghans for a Better Tomorrow. We believe that a better tomorrow is possible, both for the American people, but for Afghans as well. And I would say also the best argument one can make right now for the US opening its doors is you've done this in the past. You did this for the Cubans in the 1960s. There was an open door policy that lasted almost 50 years well into the Trump, into the Obama administration. And then you also did it after Vietnam in 1975. And so there is definitely precedent for this. And not only that, the folks who are trying to leave, they're my friends. Some of them are my family. They're my friends, family and friends. These are the best people out of Afghanistan. This is a brain drain. This is disastrous for a future state of Afghanistan. But they deserve refuge. But they are the most educated, they are the brightest, they have the best ideas. They are intellectuals, they are the folks who can make a difference and they would be well integrated into American society or somewhere in Europe or somewhere in neighboring countries. And the US should do whatever it can in its power, which it has the power to. The question is, does it have the political will? That's where I come in because I say, you can do it, you should do it. But any person who seeks refuge, the United States should help them facilitate that and offer refugee resettlement services and money and funds as well. Yeah, I think it's our moral obligation, you're right. There's certainly precedent for it. We have an open door policy on Cuba today. And so why not for Afghanistan? And. You know, many other countries like North Korea, where we were involved in a war, and then those people were got caught on the wrong side, and they've been living in concentration camps, etc. But in, but right now, most pressing need is to actually rescue people whose lives are in danger in Afghanistan as we speak, and so our refugee policy should be as broad as possible for that particular country at a minimum. After all the destruction that we did. So that brings me to at the end to your family story because I don't know it and I'm curious about it. Because America might have done more damage during the Russian occupation than we did during the American occupation. Because we did so much propaganda to encourage violence in Islam. We not only gave weaponry, but we almost created the Mujahideen through our propaganda saying you attack the atheists, the godless Soviets. Uh, the godless communists and and real Islam is violent Islam. And so uh, do your parents remember a time in Afghanistan when it was more liberal society? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to describe it, my parents remembered when the US wasn't meddling in Afghan affairs. And I think if you carefully read the history of what happened, uh, for me to not have sit here in front of you in Los Angeles, California, uh, for me to not have been a product of displacement, for me to not have been the, uh, the children of refugees, uh, it would have meant that the US did not send literature in the mid 1970s to encourage Islamic fundamentalism. It would have not used the Mujahideen in the 80s as a, um, <laughs> as a uh, tool in the proxy war against the Soviet Union. And then the, the, the history right after that is 
uh, once they accomplished their mission and used the these Islamic fundamentalists to their own means, they forgot about the Afghan people. And then all of a sudden, they were surprised that Afghanistan was used as a uh, as a place where folks were training uh, people to fly buildings into planes. Okay, so they, where, what what is the lesson we can take into into the today? Like, in fact, like I understand folks don't want to take in more refugees. I had. Heart, I very much disagree with all those people. I understand it, but these people, U.S. foreign policy, these, these, this administration going back all the way to the Carter administration, have created this crisis. You know, this is 45 years of pain and misery that the Afghan people um, have endured, and the least they deserve is dignity. And let me just like make the point as well. Nobody wants to leave Afghanistan. Even when I went back there, I was like. I would rather have nothing to be able to live here in safety. And unfortunately, that's not possible because now there's a repressive rule and nobody wants to live under that too. So the, the least the US owes us is, uh, uh, the least the US owes the Afghan people is safety and refuge. It's, it's relatively simple. All right, uh, Arash Zizada uh, for Afghans for a Better Tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Back on the conversation, Erica Smith joining us. She's a US Senate candidate in North Carolina. She's progressive. And she has a quote against her from a Democratic consultant that is one of the most outrageous quotes I've ever seen. So on that alone, I want to talk to Erica again. But we're gonna talk about some things before we get there. Erica, welcome back. Glad to be back with the TYT family. Good to see you again, Jake. All right, good to see you. So um, last we talked, uh, you know, you had run for the state for your for the U.S. Senate seat before, and uh, the National Democrats had supported uh, a more of a conservative Democrat uh, in, in that race. He went on to lose yeah. the general election. By the way, I could be saying that about almost any state right now. Ohio, Nebraska, Missouri, Indiana, you Kentucky, name it. Kentucky, Texas, Kentucky, yes. Exactly, right? So it's that same playbook, make sure the progressive doesn't win. Let's get a conservative Democrat who's gonna lose in the general election. They run it every time, it's it's madness, right? So It's I, insanity. I've been doing it over and over again. Expecting a different yeah. result, we've heard that before somewhere, right? So now, Erica, I just want the audience to understand. It's not like they think, and this is gonna be a prelude to the crazy quote. It's not like they think, oh, well, you know, it's not, we're not worried about Erica Smith being too progressive. We're worried she's not qualified enough because you were a state senator, an engineer, a teacher, and a minister. So one question is, is there a job you haven't had? <laughs> and then, but but in all seriousness, if and when you ever talk to Democratic leaders, whether it's in your state or at the national level, what argument do they make to you? Because they can't possibly say that you're not qualified. So why do they say that they're they're supporting other candidates when they do? 
And it's not that I'm not qualified, I'm overly qualified and I'm highly, highly competent and that's what they fear. Um, I have I'm someone who brings a broad background. I have the business acumen, the intellect to be able to articulate on the issues and re-engineer the criteria to make them work just as well in the rural center as they do in the urban center. And so there is no excuse. Every poll showed them last time that I was leading. I was the front runner beating the incumbent by double digits and by wider margins than the moderate centrist Democrat that they went with. But we're really, really excited about who we're bringing to the table. We're fighting for the people of North Carolina. We've never been the establishment candidate. We are the constituents candidate and that's what matters. Yeah, so that brings me to this quote that drove me crazy. So a Democratic political consultant named Thomas Mills said that about you, quote, you know, at some point that becomes on her, meaning, and when he was asked about your fundraising, that two other candidates are out raising. You raise a good amount of money, you're in the six digits, and and so you've got good grassroots fundraising, etc. So you're on the board for sure, right? But they come in with giant lobbyist money. So he says, you know, at some point that becomes on her because the network they bring in is generally a reflection of their experience and their work. Is that your experience in politics? I mean, you're a state senator. This he says, well, if you raise a ton of money from lobbyists, that that is a good reflection on you. Um, has that been your experience? No, it's it's quite the opposite. That is that does not speak to who you're going to represent when you are elected to that office. We have enough people in Washington D.C. who are working for corporations, working for lobbyists, and I am going to work for the people who send me there. And that's the people of North Carolina. That's the voters. We have too much of that going on in Washington D.C., and that's why we cannot deliver on bold, progressive, um, and create policies that are going to create structural change for folks who are struggling every day all across this state, all across this nation. And so I am disappointed in that quote. We raised more in two, three and a half weeks from our launch in early March than we raised the entire election cycle the last time around. We certainly raised more money than Cal Cunningham raised at this point in order for them to get them out of DC and backing his campaign. And it was a failed campaign. We've seen time and time again, we've had candidates, moderate Democrats who raised millions upon millions of dollars. But that does not equate to a victory in November. But it does equate to more money for <laughs> Democratic consultants. Um, and that's why this guy's focused on what he called a network of friends and donors. Um, and Erica, you know, isn't that really the issue with the Democratic establishment, whether it's in North Carolina, your state or anywhere else? I mean, you're for Medicare for all, Green New Deal, canceling student loan debt, and you focus on, quote, extreme income inequality. Absolutely. But the Democratic consultants and lobbyists, for them, that's not really the bug, that's kind of the feature. Is that the issue here in the split in the Democratic Party between progressives and establishment? That's 
that is their hyper focus. Um, that is the consultant's hyper focus. But as we've seen time and time again, that doesn't work. There is a new face of electability in the South, as we've seen with so many inspirational candidates who are progressive, who are like me, um, who are funded by the people, a completely people powered grassroots movement. That's what this is about. And so as soon as they get on board, then we will see victory. Uh, we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. As you know, my favorite scientist Einstein said that that is insanity. But that is what we're seeing. But it's a failed, um, it's a failed plan, and it's dead on arrival. So we're not focused on the corporate dollars, the lobbyist dollars. We've sworn off um, corporate PAC money. We don't take any money from fossil fuel industry, and so we are committed to doing this the right way, the way it should be done. So I'm going to get to a dollar per door, but can you give folks your website here so they know how to support you? Yes. Yes, please go to my website. It's ericaforus.com. I'm one of us for all of us. I'm one of us who's going to fight for us in Washington, D.C. www.ericaforus, E R I C A F O R U S.com. All right. I do that because when people are running without corporate PAC money, they can't win without you. So you've got to help in whatever way you can if you're progressive and that's your inclination. All right. So. You're running an interesting campaign, a dollar, one dollar for one door. What does that mean? Okay, what that means is that we're inviting people to join this initiative and we are traveling all over the state of North Carolina. And what we have found on the ground is that people want someone who's gonna bridge and build a diverse working class coalition and bring us together. So for every dollar that's donated to this campaign, we will knock on one door. So one dollar will knock on one door, five dollars, five doors, twenty dollars, twenty doors. In a county in North Carolina that Trump won in 2020. And so what we are sharing and what this initiative is about is we're inviting everyone to directly help us bring about the change that we need to see in this country. Well, you know, you once said that you know the value of a dollar because your parents struggled to hold on to the family <laughs> yes. farm. So by the way, I added the whole, you know, you got the engineer and the minister and the I mean, did you do any farming? <laughs> Were you also a farmer? <laughs> you know, that's what motivated me, Jake. There's, there's never um, any hard work like farming. We harvested cucumbers, corn, um, soybeans, cotton, peanuts. And so I would have to get up from can't see in the morning to can't see at night. We would get up at 5, 5.30. We would help my family um, harvest our produce. We would take it to the farmer's market and then we would divide that um, among our family. And one thing that that taught me was to harness the available resources. But as well, Jake, you never left anybody in the field by themselves. It's about looking after your neighbor. And this is what our diverse working class coalition is about. It's making government work for all of us, not just the wealthy, not just the well connected. I know the value of a dollar because I grew up in poverty. Um, I, I grew up in a family with six children. My dad was in the United States Air Force. We called my mom the domestic engineer who was a teacher and, a, and an office manager um, and who went back to work after raising six children, five girls and one boy. And so um, they made sure that we all got a quality education. And I was you know, very fortunate to be a mechanical engineer. And I used to work for Boeing in Seattle, Washington. But North Carolina is home for me. It was where I was born on a military base. 
And it's where I've spent the last 20, 25 years um, building community, building capacity, and making sure that the we close the rural urban divide. Ericaforus.com. All right, one more question at least. Um, look, when, when I see you, I see one of us. Um, and yes. uh, unfortunately, when the uh, Democratic establishment and, and oftentimes the establishment media sees you, they see you in a different light. Uh, so I want to talk to you about, uh, for example, what you did at Boeing. So it says that you fought to standardize the pay scale. So yes. that you. Now, I hesitate in saying this because the, the press is so against progressives that they'll paint this in a negative light. But to me, it sounded like you were doing, you were creating some good trouble at Boeing. Well, absolutely. Not only at Boeing, but every profession that I have worked in, I've fought for equal pay for equal work. As a black woman engineer, I wasn't earning what white male counterparts were earning. Black women still today only earn 62 cents on the dollar of a white male, and that's unfair. And so we have to have an economy that works for all of us. And the only way we're going to close this extreme income inequality is to start with equal pay for equal work, create good union paying jobs. For us, we're fighting for a $15 minimum. Minimum wage, that's the floor for us. And so when people look at me, they do see my difference. But what people also see is that when I have knocked on these doors, as we have been on our 100 county and 100 days tour, I have found people who look like me, people who don't look like me, but are going through the same struggles. Because regardless of how we look, how we look, we are all caught in the same rigged economy, Gene. We're all infected and impacted by a broken healthcare system, and we are all impacted by this climate crisis. And so we are about bringing a coalition together who's gonna start these conversations and put in the work to make sure that we can create a country and a state that works for all of us. So if we're serious about delivering comprehensive change and these transformational policies, then we need to build this new coalition and we need to knock on these doors. So we're asking everybody, please donate, go to ericaforus.com or you can text join. J-O-I-N to 51550 and become a part of our moral movement. We are about creating the structural change that's gonna make a difference in the lives of so many. Make sure you volunteer too, okay? People power is important. Yes. And Erica, it would be an unbelievable pleasure to see you in the United States Senate with all the background and the qualifications that you have to represent the people. Thank you for joining us again, really appreciate it. Thank you, take care until next time.